Well, while we're finding our places here, we're going to Luke chapter 24 today. Luke chapter 24, mostly toward the end of the chapter. All right? Well, that's just kind of a warning about what we're about to do. But uh, if you start somewhere around verse number 44, you're in good place. I know some of you do this digitally, and it's a little harder for me to say somewhere in this chapter we're going to be, because you want specifics so you can get right to that number. But uh, let's start with 44 today. We are in a study, for some of you folks who haven't been with us for the last few weeks, um, this is actually week number five in our study on preparing for harvest. We're looking at those days between the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ, which there are 50 days in between those two, and the day that we're targeting is the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. But Jesus stayed for 40 of those 50 days, and he instructed his disciples And uh, they needed prepared for something. They had no idea what was about to happen. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people came to the Lord, and instantly there was a church. And how do you have these men ready to go? They were the leaders. And so the Lord instructed them and trained them over the course of those 40 days. And we've already seen several places. Most of those are in those those verses that come after the resurrection section we spend time on every year. And uh, so we, we don't see too many of these passages over the course of our study. But uh, he talked about trust, the servant's trust. And uh, Peter and the disciples went fishing when they were told to just go to Galilee and wait. They, they waited in a boat, I guess. So they went fishing and the Lord instructed them to cast their nets on the other side. And there they uh, were able to bring in fish. But there was an element of trust necessary there. Loyalty. They needed trained in loyalty as servants of the Lord. And Peter especially kept getting asked, Do, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me more than these? And we saw also focus. Peter wanted to know, but what about John? <laughs> he, he got some information on his own life, but he wanted to know about John too. And Jesus uh, said, what is that to you? You follow me. And we as servants of the Lord must have that focus too, right? Follow him. Follow him. So we dealt with that. Last week we talked about authority. The Lord said, uh, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. You go and make disciples of all nations. And so we talked about the authority that a servant needs. Now today we're going to talk about the message, the message itself. And that's what we look at here in Luke chapter 24. Look at these words from 44, let's I'll go down to 49. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, 
but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Heavenly Father, as we begin to study this passage, help us to understand it. It's your word, and we know that uh, it's powerful, and it's going to do its work today. And so help us, we pray, Lord, to understand it, to, to respond to it, and to do it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. The message. The servant's message. How do you like the idea that you only need one tool? One tool to do a job? To do any job. In ministry, we have a tool. We're given the tool. It's the Word of God. One tool. Now, we talk about harvest season coming along, and it won't be long before machines will be out in the fields doing what they're supposed to do, right? You prepare these machines for the task. You get them ready. But there's a variety of machines being used uh, out in the field. Uh, the trucks and the tractors and the bins and the, the combines and all the, that's necessary. Wouldn't it be great if there was all just one big machine? What do you think? Jay, one, one big, does it all. <laughs> we know it's not that way. But could you imagine just one machine? Simplify it. Just one machine for harvest. That would be something. This uh, past week, uh, Paul had the privilege of going to the OSU Extension Center down by the fairgrounds and to learn tractor safety and get certified to, to work with farm machinery. He passed. That's great. He did that. But we go in on the first day and I drop him off and I noticed something. Uh, these are 14 and 15 year olds getting out of cars and going into this place. And some of these young men, they came out looking like the farmer. They had their uh, ball caps on. They had their flannel shirts so nicely tucked in, their, their jeans and their boots, and pliers on their belt. Shiny new pliers at that, but shiny pliers on their belt. And then I just, I just thought I'd look around yesterday while sitting there at Donuts, how many guys came in with pliers on their belt. Seems like the tool that's necessary. Uh, I don't know much about uh, uh, farming and the way you folks do it, but I do think that maybe those pliers are somewhat of a universal tool in many different usages. You've got to have your pliers. Well, that's just an outsider looking in, and I noticed the pliers. I thought, yep, that's pretty interesting. When you folks look inside at pastoral ministry, you might think it's a very complicated-looking thing. You, you realize that there's, of course, preaching that needs to be done, and teaching that needs to be done, and, well, there's hospital visitation, and other visitation, and there's counseling, and there's all kinds of ministries that you might... Notice happening around the pastoral circles uh, of a church. You enter into the pastor's office and you see that whole shelf or shelves full of books or walls full of books. And, and you say, wow, that's pretty intense. Matter of fact, you see books that you can't even pronounce the name of them. To tell the truth, we can't either. We say just to have those big names on the books and things. But... Uh, we, we, we see these things and we think, it must be complicated. But I'm going to show you the simplified version of it all today, and it's in knowing and teaching God's Word. One tool. The Word of God. And that's going to be our focus today, because you're in ministry too. 
as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, you serve Him, right? And in your service of Him, you have something to do. And what do you think is the tool He's given to you? It's the same thing He's given to me. It's the Word of God. Do we use it? Do we know it? That's very important, whatever ministry we're involved in. I like the, the uh, testimony of Ezra. Back in the book of Ezra, chapter 7, verse 10, Ezra, writing his, the book, wrote about his own uh, practice, his own desire, and he said these words, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach it. That was Ezra's desire. He studied it so he can learn it himself, so he could practice it himself, so that he can teach it to others. That was Ezra's practice. I, I find that to be exactly what we're all about and what we should be doing. Learning it, practicing it, so we can teach it to others. And so, we talk about being students of the Word. You can't be a student of the Word without the Word. You must study the Word. We must do that. And I can hardly call on you to be a student of the Word if I'm not a student of the Word, right? And it's essential that we understand this today. So I'm going to take you on to this next lesson that the Savior taught in those short weeks between His resurrection and His ascension. How He went to prepare His disciples for a huge responsibility of leading the church and how they were responsible they were responsible immediately to handle and to give out the Word of God. That's a big task. And that was coming on their shoulders right away. So here in Luke chapter 24, I'm going to back you up a little bit in the chapter and kind of bring you up to where we are in this particular passage. And here, this is just hours. Picture Luke 24 as this. Just hours after the resurrection of Christ. On that Easter day, all right, the ladies have already had their, their encounter and they came back with the testimony that they had seen the Lord. And we saw last week that the disciples really believed them, didn't they? No, they did not. They said that's nonsense and they would not believe it. It even says that. We would not believe it. And over and over we saw those things. But uh, that was just a little bit earlier than this passage we're in right here. And here, if you back up all the way to verse number 13, for example, you talk about the Emmaus disciples. Remember the Emmaus disciples? They were just a couple of disciples on their road down to Emmaus. We call them Emmaus disciples. Uh, they were walking along that way. They had already heard from the ladies that, they, that Jesus had risen. But they still aren't believing it as they walk along. They're talking about it. And here Jesus joins them. So if you start in verse 13, it says, Behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. He said to them, What are these words which you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, 
Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word and in sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be sentenced to death and crucified him. We were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since all these things happened. But some of the women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early this morning. They did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. Does it sound like they're convinced? Not at all. Notice what Jesus says in verse 25. He says to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets had spoken. Slow of heart to believe. Now, hold your place right here and think with me for a few minutes. Just kind of back up and then come back to this passage. We're talking about the Feast of Pentecost. That's 50 days after this. Alright? And uh, it's a festival. It's a harvest festival. The, the first fruits are being brought in, and it's a time of joy to, to realize that the Lord has again provided the harvest for the year and such. And, and yet at the same time, it was a very revealing type of festival because it, it showed more than just that there was a harvest, but it showed your response to the Lord because of the harvest. Alright? Now, we can easily just go about our job. But how much better, more better is it when we go about our job with joy and rejoicing because of what the Lord has done? Well, this is the nature of this harvest. They called it a feast, not a fast. It was a feast. And they were to rejoice in that. And in the Old Testament, there were several references to this particular feast, especially in the book of Exodus. Uh, there are several places, chapter 23, chapter 34. And then in Leviticus, it kind of spells out a little more in detail. And I'm just going to read it to you, because I want you to keep your place in Luke here. But uh, in Leviticus, way back here, chapter number 23 he gives directions. Moses gave directions as to how to celebrate this feast. And let me just read these uh, um, requirements to you here. Leviticus 23 starts in verse 15. You shall count for yourself from the day after the Sabbath, from the day when you brought in the sheep of the wave offering. There shall be seven complete Sabbaths. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. You shall present a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring in from your dwelling places two loaves of bread for a wave offering. Make two tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour baked with leaven. Notice that. Isn't that interesting? Bake this one with leaven as first fruits of the Lord. Also, you shall, with the bread, you shall present seven one-year-old male lambs without defect and a bull of the herd, and two rams, they are to be a burnt offering to the Lord, with the grain offerings, and their drink offerings, as an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. 
You shall also offer one male goat for a sin offering, and two male lambs, one year old for a sacrifice of peace offering. The priest shall wave them with the bread at the first fruits of the wave offering with two lambs before the Lord that are to be holy to the Lord for the priest. On the same day, you shall make a proclamation as well. You are to have a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work. It is a perpetual statute in all your dwelling places throughout all your generations. When you reap the harvest of your land, moreover, you shall not reap to the very corners of the field, nor gather the gleanings of your harvest. You are to leave them for the needy and the alien. I am the Lord your God. Okay, now, if you're listening to all that, you're starting to make mental notes of, oh, we got to have this, we got to have this, we got to have this, we got to have this. And shopping lists start to develop in your mind, right? got to have all these parts and pieces, and you got to do it this way, and you got to present it this way. Now, there's a lot of detail in all that, and it gets repeated again in Numbers chapter 28 with more information. But you probably noticed that last verse I just read to you. With all the requirements going on, when you go out into your field to start your harvest and you go around the field, leave the corners. Don't touch the corners. If you drop something along the way, leave it on the ground. Not to pick it up. There was a reason for that, right? It was for those who were poor, the widows and others, can come behind you and pick up what you have left behind. And it, it provided for them too. So, this was supposed to be a time where people were rejoicing. Harvest season, first fruits. Even the poor could rejoice in this one, couldn't they? Because they could glean from the fields as well. Now, later, Jesus, or not Jesus, Moses wrote in Deuteronomy some more information about who's invited to this feast and how it's to be done. Deuteronomy 16, just a handful of more verses. Verse 16, or chapter 16, verse 9 through 12. You shall count seven weeks for yourself. You shall begin to count seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the standing grain. Then you shall celebrate the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God, watch this, with a tribute of a free will offering in your hand, and you shall give just as the Lord your God blesses you. Now, have you been blessed by the Lord? Have you given back to Him in the same way that He's given to you? Really? This is what it says. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. You and your son and your daughter and your male and female servants and the Levite who is in your town and the stranger and the orphan and the widow who is in your midst in the place where the Lord your God chooses to establish his name. You are to rejoice. Do you need a command to do that? <laughs> Check that heart all of a sudden. Do you need a command to rejoice? To give to the Lord according to the blessings that He's given. That's all part of this festival. That's the way they were supposed to respond. And everyone was included, right? You just heard the list. Everyone. Everyone was included. And you shall remember, he goes on to say in verse 12, that you were a slave in Egypt, and you are to be careful to observe these statutes. Now, over the years, Israel showed at times that they were very careless in keeping the statutes. We know that. The whole Old Testament is full of that 
documented. They, oh, they, they messed up a lot. But also, they were pretty good at something else. They were pretty good at taking fast and feast and making them unbearable. They can compound it with all their traditions and with all their regulations and making it a system and those who can follow it, it builds their pride because of the way they, they align these things. And all the way through, they kept emphasizing rules and rules and rules and rules. And they can follow rules without ever engaging their heart. That's what it became. Ritual. A feast that became a ritual. They're supposed to rejoice, and it's just a ritual. Now, are we going to be real quick at pointing the fingers at them? Is this something we're capable of just as easily? To turn it all into ritual as well. So, Pentecost is about to develop. Before uh, Scripture, we see that, but here's the disciples right on the verge of it. And this is the context that we're studying here. They're about to enter into that. And they can read from the scriptures like they've done for centuries. Reading, reading, reading. But not comprehending. For one of the things that they felt traditionally they needed to do on Pentecost was read Exodus chapter 19. And in case you wonder what that is, that's the day Israel, after three months, came into, out of Egypt and now reached Mount Sinai and God gave them the law. They were rejoicing on the giving of the law, but guess what they didn't do? Obey the law. Isn't that an interesting mix? They were rejoicing in giving. Every year they read the same passage, and God gave us the law, and then they carried on in their same ritual, and they didn't practice what they were told. It's an amazing thing that they, they had that reminder every year in front of them. And they also read another book. This won't surprise you at all. They read the book of Ruth. You remember what happened in the story of Ruth? She came to town, her and her mother-in-law, and they had nothing, and she had to go out into the field and glean, and guess which corner she would have had to look into, and what she would have to pick behind in order to gain anything, in order to glean, so they had something to eat. It was at the time of harvest season. It all fits in. That's why they read that book. I find it very interesting. Because if they were following it according to laws and rituals and things like that, they would have never lost the beauty of, or gained the beauty of this, that Boaz was a godly man. And if you read the story of Boaz, Boaz didn't just follow the law, he loved the law. And everyone knew it. And add to it one more thing. Here is Ruth coming into the scene following the same law, and she wasn't even a Jew. The Jew, it should have convicted you right away. A Gentile doing something that we should have been doing all along. Just an interesting portrayal. But they read this year after year after year after year. And they lost sight of those who were truly blessed of the Lord. As the Lord had blessed them, they were supposed to be rejoicing, right? But they lost sight of all these things. As a result of that, they just kept his law, kept his law, kept his law. There's a beauty in the picture of a man who follows the law, who loves the law. Psalm 1, blessed is the man, it goes into verse number 2, who delights, do you like that word? Who delights in the law of the Lord. 
delights in the law. I think that's just a beautiful word. And I want to just ask you a personal question. Ask yourself this in your heart. When you read God's word, do you like delight in it or are you reading it because it's a ritual? This morning, did you wake up and say, I need to spend time in God's Word? Or did you wake up and say, I want to spend time in God's Word? When I was younger, I have to confess, I thought that if I did not read my little portion from my daily bread, our daily bread, that my day would be terrible. That's very superstitious, I confess. I realized that. I thought that the Lord would squash me or something if I just didn't read that little paragraph in the morning. Are you like that? I was convicted of that when I went to college. All of a sudden I realized the Lord didn't want me just to read it because I must, but read it because I wanted. I should delight in the law of the Lord. That was what was missing in Pentecost. The delight side, the rejoicing side. He delights in the law of the Lord and he meditates in it day and night. And he will be like a tree Firmly planted by the streams of water, which yields its fruit. It has a harvest. Yields its fruit in his season. His leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. See, God's word is fruitful. It always accomplishes what he sends it out to do. Scripture testifies to that. And here we have Emmaus disciples. Take you back to our story. I know, I took you a long way around just to get to this point. But here we are, the Emmaus disciples. Jesus is talking to them and they're discussing the great event that just happened and they're not confident about it yet. And he says, Oh, you foolish men and slow of heart. Notice that. Slow of heart to believe the scriptures and what it says. I hope that's not describing us this morning. I hope it's not. Slow of heart to believe. Was it not necessary, he says in verse 26, for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, uh, verse 27 is beautiful, beginning with Moses, that's where we were, and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all of scripture. You want a theology lesson. Wow. That would have been outstanding to have listened to, huh? He explained himself in all the scriptures. Now, keep reading on through the passage. And they approached the village, verse 28 says, where they were going. And he acted as though he were going further. And they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is not nearly over. So he went to stay with them, and he reclined at the table with them. He took the bread and blessed it and began, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened. Talk about a slow heart. They already had the, the theology lesson, right? And now they're, sometime later, the meal's already prepared, they're sitting there eating, and all of a sudden they go, oh. all of a sudden, they realize what's going on. And they said to one another, well, no, verse 31, their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? What do you do with a burning heart? While they're walking, they just testify. 
he was explaining it, it was burning, but what did they do about that? They went home and had dinner. That's their response. They sat there as it was still normal. They talked to him, and, and then all of a sudden they understood it, and now they look back and say, well, that's what it was, it was burning. Why wasn't there a first response to this? Why weren't they rejoicing then? Slow of heart, right? Slow of heart. So they said, it was burning as he explained the scripture to us. Now, that's a long ways around because they go back to Jerusalem and they say, hey, we've really seen the Lord and such. Now, on the heels of that is where our, our part of chapter 24 comes into play. While they were telling these things, verse 36 says, they're in Jerusalem talking to the disciples, he himself stood in their midst and said, peace be to you. And they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. <laughs> Didn't they just see him? The, the reactions here are great. They were startled. They were frightened. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do you doubt to rise in your heart? See my hands, see my feet. You know this passage. He talked later about, you know, giving me something to eat. They provided. And then verse 44, he starts to speak. And he said to them, these are my words. I'm going to emphasize something as I read through this one more time for you. These are my words, which, are, which I spoke to you while I was with you. All the things were written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Notice the emphasis on Scripture. Then he opened their minds in verse 45 to understand the what? The Scriptures. Now, I have this neat little quote. I had... Uh, read once Charles Spurgeon said, the Holy Spirit delights to open the word to those who seek his instruction. He delights to do that. We should delight in the word and he delights to share it with us. The Holy Spirit delights to open the word to those who seek his instruction. And Psalm 119, 130 says, the unfolding of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. And Jesus is unfolding it right before them. And as he's unfolding it, he says in verse 46, he says to them, Thus it is written. Notice that. Goes back to scripture, doesn't he? Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in all the nations, beginning with Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Now, one more time, verse 46. I want you to listen to the parts. He said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise from the dead the third day. You see that, right? And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You see that, right? And you are witnesses of these things, right? Now, watch this. This is great. Let's go to Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Here's Peter. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit comes. They start to speak in languages they've never spoken before. And all these people are hearing their message. And the conclusion is, these men must be drunk. Alright? How else can they be doing what they're doing? Now, most, I've, I've heard a few drunk people. I've lived in Chicago. And uh, I've heard a few drunk people. And I don't think what they were speaking was really a language. 
How do you equate they're speaking a foreign language with being drunk? But that's what they concluded. And here Peter takes his stand. Verse number 14. Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them. Watch his message. This is, this is perfect. Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken. Watch his emphasis on the word. This was what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last, it shall be in the last days, God says, I will pour forth my spirit for all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will... In those days pour forth my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above, the signs on the earth below, blood and fire, vapor and smoke. And you're saying, wow, what a sermon this has to be. What's he talking about? He's quoting scripture, isn't he? Keep going with him. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord it shall come, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in their midst, just as you yourself know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it's impossible for him to be held in his power. He just explained the gospel in that part, didn't he? Jesus Christ died and rose again. He started that in, just as it's written. He's describing this. He talks about David, and he says in verse 25, I saw the Lord always in my presence. He is at my right hand, so I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. He's quoting scripture, isn't he? Okay. He's back in the book of Psalms now. My flesh will also live in hope because you have not abandoned my soul to Hades. You will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. You have made known to me the way of life. You've made me full of gladness in your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he is both dead and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on the throne. He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh undergo decay. Now, you're saying, what is all this? He is quoting scripture to them and showing it applies to Christ. Isn't that what Jesus did? He explained scripture, Old Testament, and related it to himself. That's what Peter's doing. He's just quoting scripture and saying, that's about Jesus. That's about Jesus. That's about Jesus. Just what he did. This Jesus, verse 32, God raised up with him. Uh, this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. You see that phrase? We are all witnesses. Is that not what Jesus told them they were? Keep going. Therefore, having been exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. It was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, quoting scripture again, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, know for, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. Why? Because Peter was an eloquent speaker? No. 
The word of God was burning in their hearts. And they responded. They pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And watch these words. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of the Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Didn't Jesus tell them that too? They were to preach repentance, forgiveness of sins. You will see the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you. And Jesus said that too. It's a promise from the Father. Your children from all who are far off, just as many as the Lord will call to himself. And he kept testifying to this. Simple way of saying this. When Peter spoke, he didn't go on Peter's opinion. He didn't go with Peter's thoughts. He didn't write out Peter's sermon. He spoke scripture. And it pierced the heart of these people. They wanted to know, now what do we do? It's scripture that changes the heart. The Holy Spirit at work. It's not Pastor Bob. It's not anyone who's human that speaks. It's the word of God that reaches the heart. If that is our tool, that works. If we're hanging on to our way of communicating it, if we think that eloquence is going to do it, if we think that education is going to do it, if we think that somehow we can impress people with the choice of our words, we're using the wrong tools. It's God's word that changes the heart. That's what pierces. That's why he told them, go and speak, thus it is written. And Peter did that. I could give you example after example after example. I just want you to rest in a couple of thoughts as we bring this down to something to understand. We all have been given God's word. You have a copy right now in your hand, right? You brought it with you. Do you know how precious that thing is? That copy is the living word of God. It changes lives. Do you read it out of ritual or do you read it out of delight? How do you approach this book? Do you come with, it, with an appetite? D.L. Moody used to say that seven days without the Bible makes one week. W-E-A-K. I think, you know, that's right. When's the last time you read it yourself? I mean, just read it. This is what Paul says. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, that by it you are also saved. If you hold fast to the words which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you first of importance that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul preached from the Scriptures. When Paul talked to Titus about the qualifications for an elder, what do they have to be? Listen to these. He said to Titus, he said, For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, that means fighting, not of fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, and holding fast to the word. Holding fast to the faithful word. That's their tool. That's what they're given. The word of God. So he could both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Then Paul writes to Timothy. He tells him to study, be diligent, to present yourselves approved unto God, 
a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. As a servant of the Lord, can you stand before him and say that you have studied his word and that you handle it accurately? We're called to that. We've been given the tool, right? You've been practicing and using it. Have you worked it through to understand it and know how to use it? 2 Timothy 3.16 All scriptures inspired by God. Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. It's our one tool. Do we know how to use it? Do we spend time in it? Then he writes again to Timothy in chapter 4. And he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is judged the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Oh, there you say, now that's only for pastors now. No. Preach the word. Be ready. In season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. The time will come. They will not endure sound doctrine. Is that day still coming, or are we there now? We're there now. They will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. They will turn their ears away from truth. They will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. All this is to show you that we've been given a message. It's written in God's Word. I didn't have to write it. He wrote it. He said, now you speak it. He gives the power to do it. Matter of fact, everything about this Word is exactly what I need. I was told as a servant I had to trust Him. How am I going to trust him if I don't know him? How do I get to know him? Read the book. As a servant, I'm supposed to be loyal to him. I'm supposed to love him. How am I going to love him if I don't spend time with him? Guess what I need to do? Read the book. In Scripture, we learn that a servant must have focus. They must set their eyes on Jesus, and not on the things of this world around them, not on comparing man to man, but focus and follow Jesus. How do we do that? Read the book. We have authority as servants. We go forth with the authority. All authority has been given to me, the Lord says, go and make disciples. How can we go unless we're sent? And guess where we get that message from? From the book. Guess what it keeps bringing us back to? The message. The servant has one tool. It's the Word of God. One tool. What you've been doing with yours lately? Spending time in it? Studying it? Knowing it? Learning of your Savior? Loving Him? Following His instruction? As you probably guessed, I have a passion here. I have a passion to share this with you so that we are equipped to do it. That we might serve Him with all our heart, with the delight that He speaks of. We live in a world that is full of biblical illiteracy. Have you noticed? They have no clue. Matter of fact, bring up crazy things and they think it's in there somewhere. They look all day for it. No idea what it is. 
Are we to be like the world? Are we to be like them who know nothing of God's word? Are we to be ignorant of truth? Are we to be unable to articulate what we know? Are we to be unable to offer direction when it's needed? Counsel when it's needed? Wisdom when it's needed? Are we to be unable to comfort when it's needed? Because we don't know the book? Are we going to be unable to serve because we don't know the book? And you say, now wait a minute, do I have to know the scriptures to serve him? Do I? Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Do you know the man named Stephen? Read of him in the book of Acts. If you haven't, you'll find it right around chapter 6. This guy was a deacon. He was called to serve the widows. But he was mighty in faith, Scripture says. And as a result of that, he, there were those who came up and tried to compete with him and, and contradict him and to argue with him. And these are the words it says, that some men rose up to argue with Stephen, and they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit which he was speaking by. That's not Stephen. That's the word of God he was sharing with them. And they couldn't compete with it. So I ask you something here. How much time do you spend in God's Word? You're His servant. You belong to Him, right? You're His servant. Are you spending time in His Word? That's your message. That is your tool. That's what we've all been given. How much time do we spend in it? Your ministry. Does it revolve around the knowledge and authority of God's Word? Is that where you spend your time? I don't want to be slow of heart, do you? I don't think so. We don't want to be slow of heart. We, we want our hearts engaged. We want to come with that delight, that rejoicing, that that whole festival was supposed to be about. The rejoicing and the delight and the blessings of the Lord. And we learn the Word so that we can share the Word. And that's my appeal to you this morning as we set this before us and then in a moment we go into prayer. Talk to the Lord about your study of His Word. All right? Talk to him about that. Heavenly Father, you know every single person here in this room, and we stand before you. We, we have on the sign the name Hillsdale Bible Church, and it's important to us. And yet I hope it's not something we've satisfied ourselves with as a once-a-week type of meal, as a once-a-week encounter with it, as something that we do out of a ritual, out of a practice, out of a tradition. But I pray, Lord, that our hearts are engaged when we come to your word. We find our delight in it and we feast upon it. And we rejoice in the blessings of it. And we grow in it and we get to know our Savior because of it. And we can then serve him with fuller hearts and, and more capability and better understanding and do the ministry He's called us to do. Lord, let us not fail in knowing and loving Your Word. Drive it into our hearts, Lord, for we are callous. We are slow of heart. And we need Your work within us. Change us, I pray, Lord, that we might delight in the law of the Lord. Make us those kind of people. That when we serve, we can do it with all our hearts. We rejoice in that, Lord. You know where to start your work in each of us. And we thank you for that. Do your work, we pray. Do your work. 
in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.